We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big place outside of town. That's a big nice. place. You sold it's it out. Out. I'll say, you really should. Trying not to fall in the same old trap I left without a map, the same old place I'm going to Find smiling into that same old plan We'll do what I can to make it a little different this time The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep I'm checking the ropes There was a freight end on your rope And I'm cutting it out Hey there, welcome to episode 6 of the Enormal Cast. This is your host, Chris Calouse. It's uh, February 26th, 2012, 10 o'clock Mountain Time. On today's show, I have a very special guest, my friend and friend of the show, Hayden Kennedy. Yeah, that's right. The Alpine Taliban is in the hizzle. Um, if you guys don't have any idea who HK is, by the way, um, congratulations. And let me be the first to welcome you home from your lovely trip to Mars. Oh, wait. Were you in a coma? But just in case you did just emerge from solitary confinement, the big deal is that Jason Crook, a Canadian climber, and Hayden Kennedy summited Saratori on January 16th via a new route up the Southeast Ridge in Alpine style and by what they called fair means. And on the way down, they cleaned a hundred plus bolts off of Cesar Maestri's compressor route that was put up in 1970. And not only did this piss off a lot of Italians, but it also ignited one of the great modern controversies in climbing. Much like Cesar Maestri ignited a controversy when he hauled a 400-pound gas-powered compressor up the route to power a pneumatic drill and proceeded to put in about 400 bolts on his ascent. But before we get into that, I want to take a minute to say hey to uh, my little group of fans that have been around since the start of the Enormal Cast, and some of you came over from Off Belay. How's it going, everybody? I want to sort of say hi to you guys because I have a suspicion that there's going to be a whole bunch of new people tuning in for this episode. And, uh, you know, I suspect a lot of them will just use us like some sort of slippery knee bar on a moist day and then move on. So I just wanted to say hello. And hopefully some of you guys that are coming in for the first time, check this thing out. We'll stick around and subscribe on iTunes and see what else we got going in the next few months. I do have a bunch of cool stuff coming up after this. So hopefully everybody will stick around. But for you new folks, I should probably explain what you guys are getting into. The Enormal Cast is pirate radio. I, Chris Galoose, am the producer, I'm the engineer, I'm the writer, I'm the on-air personality, um, I am the music director. I've also performed a lot of that. I book everyone, I do the web design, I'm the custodian, um, I'm even my own fluff boy, <laughs> which is probably true for most of us. I mean, who else knows how to do it just so... Fuck, I just blew some Italians' minds. <laughs> hey, Luigi, what's a fluff boy? <laughs> no stereotypes here at the normal cast. <laughs> Furthermore, um, I am not a journalist. Uh, I am actually more of a storyteller and just made up a word 
when I was thinking about this. I think I made it up. I'm calling myself an opinionist. Is that something real? Uh, that's trademarked, just so you know. I just I just did it earlier, so don't bother. Yeah, I mean, I just, uh, this is my thing. I get to say what I want. I interview who I want, and and I don't have any pretense of being objective. So if you're looking for some sort of hard-hitting 60 minutes gotcha kind of interview, you're not going to find it. I am friends with Hayden Kennedy. Uh, I've known Hayden Kennedy since he was a little kid. I know from reading literally thousands of posts on the internet about the compressor root controversy that there's going to be people who are going to listen to this waiting for us to slip up and misspeak or have a lapse of logic or to say something that uh, doesn't quite jibe with something that was said before. So be it, you know, grab it, go to the internet and start flaming out all over it. But what I think happens in this interview, what I think happens in this story is that Hayden shows himself to be a climber of incredible principle. Uh, he is an incredible talent as well. Um, and if he doesn't show humility to the masses, which I think is the realm of the feeble-minded, he certainly shows humility to his mentors, those that he respects that have come before him, and above all, to the mountains and to the consequences that the mountains can deal to people who uh, risk their lives up there. So it turned out to be a very long interview. I'm actually going to post it in two parts. The first half, which is over an hour in and of itself, so we'll get to it quickly here, talks quite a bit in detail about the summit conversation. He talks uh, quite a bit in detail about returning to El Shalten, which has been a very dramatic part of the story. I will talk about the second half at the end of the show. Last thing before we get to it, I'm sure people are wondering about where I stand on this. Uh, at least some of the people who listen to the show know that I'm certainly an opinionist. I won't get into it too much right now. Over the show, we can. Generally speaking, I agree with what Hayden did. I find that most of the arguments against it don't hold much water. I think that there was a certainly an agreement since 1970 that that route was an abomination and it's only time and its usefulness that have made people accepting of it. And I think that's wrong. But the main thing is that what Jason and Hayden sort of inadvertently did and kind of sadly did for me is they did tear a scab off of something. And I've often talked on this show and on the old show that I find climbers to be this sort of cut above, to be this uh, kind of noble group. After reading these forums, and I have no problems with people disagreeing with what Jason and Hayden did, uh, but what I have a problem with is is the level of conversation, uh, the name calling, you know, the words like fuckers and assholes and pricks and over and over and over again in hundreds upon hundreds of posts uh, with no end in sight. And some well-known climbers and, of course, the anonymous climbers going as far as to threaten them. It just has kind of revealed to me that maybe our little group of climbers isn't such a, such a cut above and we're all just kind of petty humans. And it's been a bit of a sad go. And for some weird sadistic reason, I guess I'd rather know this about all these people than, than not know, you know, in this time of all the subterfuge of politics and people not saying what they're thinking and not being true to what they believe in. Uh, I guess it just feels better to know now that I know. 
but you know, I'm working through it. I know I have my friends in the climbing community and I have some fans that I really enjoy talking with on this site. And hopefully, like I said, we can create a community around differing opinions without calling each other fuckers. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Anyway, let's get to it. Enjoy an interview with Hayden Kennedy. I'm going to give a little introduction here where I talk about you in third person, so don't get freaked out. I did to know. Yeah. I'm sitting here in a remote studio, a bunker hidden in the Rocky Mountains with Hayden Kennedy, who's recently returned from Patagonia and has an amazing story to tell about what happened to him down there and what he was up to in Patagonia. Of course, uh, most of you listening to this probably know what I'm talking about, but we'll get to it in a little bit. Thanks for coming over, Hayden. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me over, Chris. Um, we had you on the old show uh, about a year ago. But uh, I just wanted to talk about our relationship before we get into this. Um, yeah, yeah. I've known you for how long? I think we met. I must have been. I've probably like known you since I was in sixth grade. Yeah. I mean, with Michael Logan when right. he was my teacher. Right. And, and Michael we, Logan's a good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we started playing music. Mm-hmm. I guess when I was in eighth grade. Yeah, he was. He was a saxophone program. player. Yeah, yeah, saxophone player in my band that I had when I was a teacher. And I've known your parents for a while, but yeah. uh, Michael Kennedy is a local celebrity of sorts, was the editor of Climbing Magazine and one of the early, if not the founder, one of the early progenitors of that yeah. magazine. So, But anyway, I asked uh, Hayden over to talk about his Patagonia trip, uh, which has got uh, really interesting and exciting. So you went down to Patagonia. Hayden ended up deciding with Jason Cruck to chop the compressor route. It has created one of the great firestorms on the internet that I've ever been privy to, as well as within the climbing community. It's it's turned out to be quite controversial. But I asked him over here to talk about it, and you haven't really talked to many people about this since your return. Yeah, no, not really. I mean, I haven't really been back that long. A couple weeks? Yeah, three weeks. Mm -hmm. But with the amazing sort of speed of the internet, the whole thing blew up. Yeah, pretty uh, much right when we did it, yeah, more or less, right. I mean, within the day. Right, and and that's the thing about being down <clears throat> in Patagonia, and I've talked about this on the show before, it's like, it used to be that when you went on a trip like that, you just basically disappeared into the into the nether reaches until until you reappeared, but nowadays yeah. it's, it's instantaneous. There's, yeah, I mean, that's for Patagonia, I mean, going off into outer space trips still mm-hmm. happen, places right. like, you know, Alaska and... Himalaya, obviously, but you know, Patagonia is a lot different, I think, than 20 years ago. Obviously, it has a town right. and internet, right. great stakes, right. and bouldering, and it's not like you're just festering in a tent, you know. Totally. So you can always check the weather as well. It's just it's a lot different. Yeah, it's a lot different. So you guys went down there, and you had a great trip. Yeah, we had a, an in, awesome trip in terms of of the goals that you got done. But all that's been sort of overshadowed by the fact that that you ended up pulling the bolts out of the infamous Maestri route, the compressor route on the uh, the southeast ridge of uh, Cerro Torre, and ignited this massive internet shitstorm, as well as you know beyond the internet in, into the world of mountaineering. Before we get into sort of your trip, and I'm going to ask ask Hayden to explain the chronology of, of their trip, but um, let's talk about Maestri in general and what the whole big 
fucking deal is about yeah, this whole yeah. thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, in 1959, Cesar Maestri arrived in Patagonia with the idea of climbing Cerro Torre. And he's an Italian climber, was quite a hot shot. Yeah, I mean, he was... Um yeah, he was regarded as one of the best Italian climbers at the time, for sure, and, you know, did a lot of amazing climbing in the Dolomites, so... Mm-hmm. Both ice and rock. Yeah. But he was particularly n- known, I understand, as, as a really amazing ice climber for the day. Cesar Maestri arrives in Patagonia in 1959 with the idea of climbing Cerro Torre, and him and his partner, Tony Egger, yep. set off... On the uh, North Face. On the North Face. Right. Okay. And, yeah, I mean, the North Face, you know... At this time, obviously, Saratoga hadn't been climbed, um, and the North Face is a pretty monstrous objective. I mean, even by today's standards, it's right. really only been climbed one time in its full completion, mm-hmm. um, and then also during the Torre Traverse by Roly Garabatti and Colin Haley. But the the whole story is that you know, obviously, Tony Yeager died on this on the descent, uh-huh. but they summited right. according to Maestri, right. and but there is no proof. There's no photos okay. of the summit. So, 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 yeah, let's, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Okay. So these guys set off, um, disappear up the mountain, and then essentially Maestri is found pretty much incoherent yep. on the glacier below, claiming to have climbed the mountain and Tony Egger had died on the descent, exactly. fallen. Yeah. Okay. And, and the big thing is, is that in the moment, people were amazed Obviously, they were they were blown away, blown away, but also questioning right from from the get go. I think that people definitely were questioning him right from the beginning. So, because it's such an amazing face, so impressive and so steep, that I'm I think that a lot of people automatically the amazed part was kind of you know maybe flushed away and just right. been like, wait, wait, really the right. North Face? But I mean. We'll never know, I guess, really what happened. Well, because to this obviously. day, he's still alive. Cesar Maestri's <laughs> still alive, and he's never sort of come clean on this. No, but in subsequent years, after not only that ascent, but the ascent we'll talk about on this podcast, you know, there's been sort of a barrage of investigation that mm-hmm. that to, to a point where I think, other than some very staunch Italian supporters, most people uh, disagree that he climbed that peak. Yeah, 1959. Yeah. Right, and for whatever reason, he he made it up or, or was delusional or something else. And subsequent ascents have been unable to find any evidence of him climbing above the Cola Con- Conquest or even to the actually Col- yeah. the Cola Conquest. Yeah, a lot of people don't even believe that he actually made it to the Cola right. Conquest itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but surely no evidence from right. the Cola Conquest to the summit. Subsequent sort of investigations and in, in other ascents that have actually specifically gone up there to look for any sign of rappel anchors or pitons yeah. or any sort of protection uh, had never been found. No. And, and in fact, I, I believe Maestri claimed to have placed a number of bolts. Yeah, he claimed to place, I don't know, the exact number, so don't I believe it was like 50 or 60. 50 or 60 bolts on the North Face proper from the Cold Conquest mm-hmm. up. And when Rolo and Hermano climbed Arca de los Vientos, they found no sign of these bolts. Right. So okay. it's... It's pretty unanimous that he did not climb the North Face in 1959. But then, you know, people amazed, you know, disbelief. All these mm-hmm. different things were happening. And then it kind of came down to the fact that maybe he's a liar. The one defense that he did have and that people still sort of cling to is that in the condition it was in, he claims to have primarily climbed ice 
right. from the from the coal to the summit, right? And that it was a particularly uh, iced over year, and that the possibility is is that he climbed purely on ice and therefore left very little protection. And yet, at the same time, he claimed to play sixty bolts. Yeah. So there was just so many different things that didn't add up. Um, I think the the mountaineering community instantly took him to ta- took him to task on the whole thing, which leads us to the compressor route. So in 1970, yep, he comes back, and I mean it's like yeah, he came back to prove his predecessors wrong. Mm-hmm. He wanted to humiliate them and right. prove to them that right. he, you know, could climb that he had climbed this mountain, which you know is a whole different argument in itself. Right. I mean. Going up the Southeast Ridge, was that really the best way to prove that you climbed the North Face? Why not go up the North Face right. with you know a younger, more a stronger climber to go up there with you? So he shows up, and this is when the famous compressor route appeared. Right. He shows up with thousands of feet of fixed lines. And he's sponsored by this compressor company. And he was sponsored by a compressor company. So you, you can imagine everybody having like John Deere caps on and whatnot. He proceeds to climb at a fairly middle level on the lower part of the mountain? No, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of the climbing, like the Cola Patients, which is right below the Southeast Ridge proper, it has no bolts. Mm-hmm. He added no mm-hmm. bolts to that climbing, which is, you know, not that hard, but still hard enough. Right. You know, okay. ice and mix climbing, mm-hmm. a little bit of rock climbing. And then there's a, probably about 10 pitches on the Southeast Ridge where there are really no bolts. They primarily start at the 90 meter bolt traverse, mm-hmm. but that's where Maestri put his compressor to yeah, work essentially. Yeah. I mean, a, a few pitches below, he placed a lot of bolts within three meter section horizontally. He placed like 10 bolts. Sure. There's some pictures and, online. That, yeah. That and show most off. of those bolts have been removed, but in either it's like the theory is that he had a camp there or maybe mm-hmm. he was just testing the compressor at that point. Right. But he really used the compressor right here at the 90 meter bolt traverse for progression. Mm-hmm. So the first 10 mm-hmm. pitches of the route are is clean. Right. Amazing granite, mm-hmm. splitter, just like the rest of the route, but no bolts. From there, he, he starts using the compressor, and he continues up, and he gets to the to the ice towers and does some ice and mix climbing, uh-huh. and then he starts another bolt ladder to the mm-hmm. base of the head wall. And then the head wall, he just puts a plumb line right. straight up the head wall. Right. Avoiding no all features. That, no features. And that's the thing about the 90-meter bolt traverse is he avoids natural features. They just mm-hmm. they go completely into blank rock, mm-hmm. which is an important thing to note because in 1968, I believe, the British attempt right. went up what is now known as the Salvaterra variation, which is the natural weakness of the, of the mountain. When you look at it as a climber, you see the natural weakness, and then you see the 90-meter bolt traverse, which leads into nowhere, into no man's land. Right. It essentially is, you know, it leads into the east face almost, like the blankness, but... You know, I'm not sure if if it, for him it was easier to put bolts in and mm-hmm. put pitons in mm-hmm. and actually climb. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's a, a theory out there. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of evidence in what he said during and around the ascent that this was, in so much translation, a big fuck you. He wanted to prove his predecessors wrong. He right. wanted to humiliate them. These right. words, this was conquest. Right. This was conquering alpinism. It's almost like it wasn't even about the other climbers, but it, it, it's almost like it was about the mountain. Like it was about he, the mountain. Right. He, he had something just, against this mountain. Well, I mean, it had killed his friend. So who knows? What who was knows what it was about? Head. Yeah. This was an ascent of any means necessary. Right, right. Heavy machinery, fixed ropes. This goes against all that alpine climbing stands for. Stood for. Stood for. It's not us judging a climb from the future, looking back and saying he should have used certain ethics that we... Uh, adhere to now but but by all accounts in the moment 
in the time of the ascent, it went against ethics that people were prescribing at right. that point as exactly. well. Exactly. You know, there's never been an age in alpine climbing when 400-pound gas-powered compressors have, have been, been okay. Yeah, been no. okay. So no. it's not like you can't judge him by our modern standards. It, it, and in fact... Because some of the greatest climbs in the world were done in the 60s and the 70s right. and the 80s. And in fact, and- there was probably more sentiment against bolts then than there is even now. Oh, yeah, It's for like sure. almost like it would probably have been more accepted these days. So he does this route, and, and the thing about this route is that it's the actual antithesis of his supposed 1959 ascent. So in exactly. most people's mind, and in my mind now, it, it actually has the opposite effect to actually prove to most people that there's no way you climbed it the first time. It's like some kid claiming that he can dunk a basketball, but then when you get to the court and you hand on the basketball, he's like, oh, yeah, no, I, I don't know. My ankle hurts today. Yeah. I can't pull it off. Exactly. And so basically his his motives to you know to say fuck you to every, all of his doubters, all he ended up doing was pretty much solidifying in everybody's mind that you aren't the climber you claim to be in 1959. Because if you are... What happened to that dude? What happened to that dude that climbed right. this amazing room on the North Face? Right. Why are you using this heavy right. machinery? So we, we've got this legacy. All right. So fast forward to 2011, 2011. actually. You went yeah. down there. So you and Jason Cruck go down to Patagonia. What, what, what are you guys' history down there? The first time I ever climbed with Jason mm-hmm. um, was in Patagonia, was on Fitzroy, on the Super Canaletta. That was the first time we tied in together. We had a really great time climbing together from the first time we tied in. We kind of had a good connection and a good partnership. We climbed well. We used our strengths and weaknesses. It seemed like a good partnership. And since then, we've climbed a good amount in the Rockies, mm-hmm. you know, done some cragging and kind of always been on the same page. And then this trip kind of came up a little bit last minute, actually. I had just gotten back from Asia, mm-hmm. from Pakistan, and he was emailing me looking for partners. And I was like, yeah, let's, let's go down there and let's do some climbing. We didn't really have any specific goals, you know. We wanted to just climb in the Torres. This was his fourth year there, and mm-hmm. this was my third year. You know, this year we really want to just focus on the Torres. But yeah, I mean, we got down there December 9th uh, with a two-month trip. And, you know, it's, it was kind of one of those things where uh, the previous two years that I've been down there, I had really bad weather. Okay. So I was really not expecting anything, you know? I mean, I was expecting to maybe get a, like one really good route that I was really psyched on. Right. And, Maybe like an attempt or like a small thing. I didn't really, you know, I just I didn't have big expectations by any sure. means. I don't think Jason did either. I mean, right when we got down there, I mean, it was great weather. Sure. Within like a week of being there, we had already summited two things. And so. this is like middle December? Middle December, exactly. Yeah, okay. Okay. So, I mean, we got on December 9th and within like four days, we were hiking in the mountains sure. with like a solid window. So we climbed, the first route that we climbed was uh, Sarah Stanhart, Exocet's mm-hmm. Chimney. Okay, and that's the smaller of the three Torres Exactly. you're looking at them. Yeah, yeah, it's the smaller one. Right. We were kind of like, oh, we might as well start in the smallest sure. one. Um, so yeah, we climbed Sarah Stanhart and uh, had a great day. Mm-hmm. Super fun. Definitely was, for me and Jason, was a dream just to summit one of those mushrooms. And at that point in the trip, we were kind of like, wow, like we at least climbed one of these Torres. Like we could climb nothing else and be completely content. We knew the history of Patagonia. We knew the weather. We knew right. what it's like. So for us, just to climb one of these things was a total dream. And then we had we climbed Saint Exupery a day and a half later. Where is that? I mean, how is Saint that? Saint Exupery is on the Fitzroy Massif. You know, Saint Exupery is just a classic rock climbing peak, and sure. we just climbed the classic Clear de Luna. It's just kind of uh-huh. like a really awesome alpine rock route. I mean, it's like a twenty pitch, you know, ten plus route. It's mm-hmm. really super fun. 
So we came down after that, like or the weather kind of ended, and we went back to town. And in our minds, we had had a good trip already, you know. And this was in within a week and a half, sure, of a two month trip. So we sure. were like, "Oh wow!" It was kind of funny because I remember hanging out for less than a week before mm-hmm. this mega window showed up. And the thing about you know, and that's the other thing that's changed a lot in Patagonia is the weather forecasting. You can really like these new weather forecasts are mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. they're really quite accurate, mm-hmm. like to the hour mm-hmm. almost. Like it'll be bad weather and then at six o'clock for example a.m or something it'll just right. clear up right for three days or whatever it is and it's pretty accurate mm-hmm. and so jason and i went in you know back into the torrey valley mm-hmm. and we climbed uh, we linked up punta heron mm-hmm. and torrey Eger. um punta heron is kind of like the sub summit of torrey Eger, and we got to climb that in a single push which has only been done once before well, it was actually the highlight of the trip it was just so wild because we were the only ones in the torrey valley no one else came up that day to go climbing for some reason. We were a little bit earlier than most people. Right. And it just was, it was spectacular. And it was kind of cool because we were fulfilling our Torre dreams. Totally. We, we were standing on top of the Torres. And and really, since I've been alpine climbing, it's been a big dream of mine to climb all of these Torres at so, some so, point. So it's mid, what, now you're into January? Or are you no, still this is December? Christmas. Okay. So, so we climbed this on Christmas Eve. So basically, you guys have had a season's worth of climbing. Yeah. And you've been there for a couple weeks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like most people... So we were like... This is maybe multiple seasons worth of climbing for some people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And I mean, it had we everything were, to do with the weather. It had everything to do with the weather okay. and the conditions. Right. We were ecstatic. I mean, you know, the conditions in the Torrey were amazing. The Torreys were just... The rock was clean, but the mm-hmm. ice mushrooms were really, really good. They were... Uh-huh. You know, you hear all these stories about tunneling and all this right. heinous... You know, snow digging. Totally. And we didn't have any of that. I mean, you know, me and Jason kind of joked about it afterwards that we really want that experience at some point. So you're telling us that basically these were things were like blue ice. Yeah. This like year they were. Sinking your tools into them and, and just cruising on up them. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of like, I mean, yeah, we got really lucky with the conditions. Uh-huh. But at the same time, we were really motivated. And we were, we were climbing really well as a team. We were climbing fast and efficiently. We felt strong and... I mean, I think that all those things kind of led us to, you know, kind of were this joint process for us, for the success of the trip. It was conditions, weather, everything. Yeah, we climbed Torrey and I think, what was that? I'm not sure. I think that might have been the 23rd of December or the 24th. I can't quite remember. Uh-huh. But near Christmas, and we propelled down. We had a day's worth of rest, and... You know, we really wanted to climb Saratory. Like, that was, like, kind of our main objective, I guess. But, you know, we weren't really feeling, you know, fit enough after that Torreager climb because uh-huh. we've been on the go for, like, 28 hours. So we were like, oh, well, maybe we could have a chance to climb the Torre. But, you know, in all in all honesty, we don't have the the fitness to do it this window. We're just too mm-hmm. tired from Torreager. Mm-hmm. So we went and climbed the south face of um, Aguja de la S, mm-hmm. which is just an amazing face. Had only been climbed once before. Mm-hmm. We put up an awesome rock route, a new route that we called the Gentleman's Club. It was like about 5'11 plus, and it was splitter. It was probably one of the best alpine rock routes I've ever done. It was kind of like we were just getting away with murder. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to like put it any other way. We were just climbing so much, and all of our experience in Patagonia the years previous were... You get one route in, maybe right. two routes in. So we'd right. already done or none. I mean, or you none. guys have, exactly have been or lucky, none. I kept seeing these these pictures of you guys on summits of things like on these gnarly things that I'd read so much about, you know, and read all these gnarly stories about. And here you guys are smiling, high five, and and I actually remember posting like, you guys need to at least pretend it's more gnarly than that because <laughs> yeah, you get, it's. I like, mean, also it comes down to like me and Jason just yeah. we're pretty. You guys have a good time. We're stoked. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I've never like been so. 
worked in the Al. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, I've gotten pretty worked in the in the Alpine for sure. But right. I like to try to keep it humorous. It's and one of your strengths, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, is yeah. that you, you can't can, keep it. You can't get too yeah, dark up there. So. Okay, so now you're just killing it. Yeah, we came back to town and we were kind of looking forward to just staying a little bit, you know, tranquilo, hanging out, being chill, bouldering, trying to finish up some bouldering projects, drinking drinking wine. You know, right. just the whole thing, like not real. I mean, it's just kind of like, yeah, you get into this mode of like alpine climbing. It's really cool and you're pushing it and you're climbing really well and you're going for it. But then it's nice to relax and enjoy the mountains and not actually have to go up there. You know, mm-hmm. you kind of like just like the leisurely. The feeling I've had on other trips where if you get one of your main goals done, that specter of I've spent all this money and come all this way and, and nothing, I've done nothing is gone. Exactly. So everything else is gravy. Exactly. Sure. So it's a, you're kind of just on this gravy train of yeah. anything else is just a cherry on top. Sure. But again, you know, the weather gods must have been drunk this year because mm-hmm. we got back to town, 10 days of rest, I think it was, not even, maybe a week, and mm-hmm. the weather was looking really good again. It was looking really good. Probably one of the best windows that we'd seen, and that was really good for the season, you right. know? So right. we were like, oh, wow. This seems like slapping God in the face not to go up again, and at least sure. give it a... Like a legitimate try on the Torre, you know. So Jason in 2011 had climbed on southeast on the southeast ridge, and this was he climbed with Chris Geisler, another Canadian, and they reached about 40 meters of the summit of the headwall. They came really close, the closest anyone had come. But Jason was a little bit soured by the experience because of Red Bull and some other things that he's referring to the previous year. Sorry, so it's 2009, 2010. Yeah, the season that I first went down. Um, the Red Bull crew, David Lama did not have any part of this, but the Red Bull riggers or whoever was part of this added 16 new bolts right. to the compressor route to the South okay. Seas Ridge right. and left some fixed ropes. Right. So that was 2009, 2010. This added even more controversy to this mm-hmm. historical mountain. Mm-hmm. Last, So then the last season, 2000, 2010, 2011, uh-huh. David Lama comes back with intention to free climb on territory, claims he wants to re- wrap bolt the head wall. Okay, I remember Right that. down yeah. his own variations. And this was, you know, kind of created this other controversy, right? And then there's helicopters happening, and they're climbing up there, and there's film crews, and, mm-hmm. and this whole thing kind of just, I think, soured Jason a little bit, and sure. a lot of other climbers, because, you know, of obvious reasons, you well, climb in the mountains to be by yourself, right? and, and to be yeah. on this, you know, really amazing experience mm-hmm. without anyone around. So Every climber Jason. knows that when, when the media train comes to town, there's going to be some toes stepped on, yeah. and there's going to be some sort of bounds overstep in terms of like, okay, we need to get this shot and we're going to do right. what it takes, which yeah. included adding bolts and getting in other people's way and, and creating an experience for the other climbers that was less than ideal. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I even think I was in New Zealand, you know, 20 years ago and was climbing on a mountain where there was, they were filming a National Geographic special about these guys skiing down it. And to the producer's credit, he approached us and, you know, at least ahead of time said, I know this is not what you guys were looking for out here. Mm-hmm. You know, right. we're, we, they only had one chopper and it was just going to be for the morning. You know, it was going to be something that happened over just a couple hours. And But he had the presence of mind to say, hey, I know you guys didn't come up here to be on this mountain with this chopper buzzing around. And we certainly don't want those sorts of distractions or, or whatever else. So. So that's what you're referring to in terms of Jason's ascent the previous year. Exactly. And I think that also it was kind of like, I mean, this is Jason's first time climbing on Saratore. Mm-hmm. And they gave it this amazing effort. Right. Unreal. They pushed really, really hard and kind of, 
opened a lot of people's minds to maybe like what is possible right. out there. Mm-hmm. But you know, I remember talking to Jason about it, and he was like, "Oh, I mean, I really want to climb on Saratori because it's this, this, you know, it's really inspiring, and I think it's the most beautiful peak, and climbing's amazing." But the Southeast Ridge is it has this controversy, right? Like whether it's Red Bull, whether it's Maestri, it has this controversy that just surrounds it. Saratori has this controversy that's it's it runs so deep that it's hard to climb on that mountain and not really be confronted with it at some level. Sure. So you know our original plan for climbing on Saratori was to go up on the North Face, like I said, but it was a really warm season in Patagonia. Mm-hmm. So you know getting to the Call of Conquest just seemed it looked like it was waterfalling, lots of rock fall, right. so it just didn't seem safe. And you know the Southeast Ridge. It's a ridge for the most part. Yeah. So you're on, I mean, you're on a ridge. Cold weather is a good thing because it keeps everything exactly. attached. Because yeah. as soon as they start to thaw out, things start to fly off of there. And yeah, so, then it's not so good. Yeah, so you're looking at the North Face in you know, this kind of, I would say, probably counterintuitive. You've got these beautiful climbing conditions, but here's this face that's sending missiles down it. Exactly. And you'd actually almost prefer that it was colder and windier and, and in not such good condition. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing because it's, it's really hard to get the perfect conditions in, in sure. Patagonia, especially for the Torres. I mean, they're really yeah. finicky conditions, right? Sure. Because you want the mushrooms to be good. Yeah. You want the, I mean, all the approaches, all the approach climbing, quote unquote, right. is all like ice and mix climbing. Right. And then, but at the same time, you want the rock to be clean right. of rhyme. Yeah. So you can't, so you're you asking have for a lot. Right, right. Some like four degree temperature grade. It's like you're asking for yeah. the perfect woman, but. You never, you know, it's like, it's hard to find the perfect woman. Yeah, totally. I don't know. It's it's hard thing to, to get. But, you know, for us, it seemed like, one, the Southeast Ridge was safer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, two, Jason knew the route quite well. And also, we talked about it and is an amazing objective. Mm-hmm. You look at it, you look at the photos, a race, thinking about the bolts, you just think this is... An amazing natural feature. The ideal of alpine right. climbing. It's so, the perfect mountain. So you guys are now drawn towards the Southeast Ridge. Yeah, so our plans switch to the Southeast Ridge. And we're really excited to, to try to climb by fair means and to go as free as possible. But, you know, really just to get up the mountain. Sure. Like, we just want to see if it's possible. Like, in my mind and also in Jason's, we didn't even know if it was possible, the head wall. Right. We didn't know what was up there. Jason was like, yeah, I mean, Chris Geiser, he's a really good aid climber, was doing some really... Tech nine aid climbing up there, he's like, which is slow too. Which I is mean, really so you slow. Can't, you can't really exactly. even count on that because you can't. It's too big to just be going placement to placement. You have to be able to find some free climbing up there. Exactly. Yeah. But we, you know, I was like, oh man. I mean, Chris was doing some pretty hard aid. Mm-hmm. Who knows how blank it is? I'd heard all these rumors from right. different climbers how blank it was, and, sure. and just all the myth about it. Just we didn't know if it was possible, but. Regardless, you know, that's kind of one of the reasons we go alpine climbing is the unknown mm-hmm. and pushing through the unknown or, you know, getting shut down by the unknown. For me, a big reason why I go alpine climbing for sure, right. the adventure. But we started up and we kind of had a, a, a different strategy. We camped at the Call of Patience. So we, we took a really easy day to get up there, that initial like 300 meters of kind of mixing ice climbing. Mm-hmm. Really slow with kind of heavier packs with mm-hmm. the tent and some baby gear and some good food. So can I have a question here? Yeah. What's the difference between the coal of patience and the coal of conquest? Well, the coal of conquest is sits below the north face oh, okay. and the so south face. Is that has nothing to do with this. Route. No. Okay, good. Coal right. of conquest is yeah. like different part of the mountain. Okay, cool. I just, you know, I, it's, I'm, it's, I'm an idiot. I've never been down there. You know, I, I hammered myself with reading about this thing, and it's it like just, doing homework, dude. It just gets swirled in your freaking head, like you have no <laughs> idea what's going on. 
So that is on the 59 route. Mm-hmm. And this is, okay, thank you. Sorry. So this, so the call patients sits right below the southeast ridge. Okay, gotcha. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. So, you know, we get there and it's, it's splitter, man. We are stoked. Right. The weather is amazing. I saw your pictures. It's, yeah. You it's, s- it looks like Yosemite in like, you know, July. Exactly. So we bivy and our whole plan was to get up and climb through the night and be, we want to have as much time in the head wall as possible. Sure. So we could like, if it come, if it came down to that whole aid climbing piece to piece, whatever, mm-hmm. we want to have a lot mm-hmm. of time. And so the whole plan was, um, we'd kind of like, you know, from our previous Tory climbs, mm-hmm. you know, I've been leading more of the mm-hmm. rock climbing pitches mm-hmm. and Jason been leading more of the ice and mix climbing mm-hmm. pitches. The whole teamwork thing, I think, is really key, mm-hmm. and it and it worked really well in this trip for us, and linked up really well that we were able to use our strengths. Sure. So I was leading all the rock, and he was leading all the ice and mix. So I started off in the morning. We started climbing around two thirty in the morning. From where you guys had your tent and your bivy on the cola patients, to the summit is how big? It's a thousand meters. Okay, thousand meters. Three thousand so, feet. So three thousand plus feet. Yeah. Okay, so we're looking at an L cap size thing from. Where your bivy gear was. Yeah. Okay. So I climbed about 10 pitches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, quite moderate. Mm-hmm. So maybe you're at up- the, the top of the free blast or so. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. On top of the free blast. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, cool. We're on Mammoth Terrace right, right now. Right on. And, uh, Just to put it in perspective, this thing is huge. Yeah, it's big. Yeah, right, it's big. Okay. Anyway, we get to where the 90 meter bolt traverse starts. We do the Salvatero variation, mm-hmm. which, you know, includes an A1 pitch, knife blade seam that I led. And kind of like 10 plus run out face climbing for a few pitches. Right. Really, really spectacular though. I mean, probably some of the best face climbing I've ever done. The south face of the tour, like right to your left. Mm-hmm. Just like, boom, the steepest okay. face in the world. And, you know, Jason from there led kind of like the more ice and mix train in the ice towers, mm-hmm. avoiding another one of my shoes bolt ladders below the head wall okay. by using this kind of like big ice chimney goobot that mm-hmm. Zach Smith and Josh Wharton found in 2007. Okay, I remember reading about on that. On their attempt, right. which is actually, I mean, it's probably one of the coolest ice pitches in the world. Mm-hmm. Super steep, really cool, and this you know perfect chimney mm-hmm. right below the head wall. Okay. And so that, let me ask you this: How far away from the bolt ladder is this thing that the, those guys found? Um, it's pretty far away. Like you, I mean, it's you know it's you a do serious variation. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's, it's like a, a different you, route. Okay. Oh yeah, there's no way you can clip the bolts. I mean, you're okay. like a full sixty meters away. Okay, so yeah, right? it's like a whole. Different so up route. to this point, okay. you're like fully away from the bolts okay. on the Salvaterra as well. You, right, you're nowhere near the bolts. Okay. And then I should note on the Salvaterra variation, mm-hmm. um, Hermano Salvaterra and his other partner, mm-hmm. they placed some bolts okay. during this ascent sure. or during that variation. And it's still 510R climbing. It's right. still quite run out, right. but there are bolts. Okay. I clipped those bolts. Okay. Right? So mm-hmm. those are some of the bolts that I clipped right. on this ascent. And then I follow that ice pitch mm-hmm. and below the head wall, mm-hmm. and we're ecstatic. I mean, it's so unreal. I can't, I mean, for me, it was. Just the fact that we were up on this mountain was, was pretty amazing. And it's my turn again to go on the head wall to blast off. And I mean, I, I can't really, like I, I don't know, it's hard for me to put it in words. It's like a dream. I don't really remember that much of it. Just like this really wild experience. But yeah, we blast off and we did the first, I think I did the first two pitches probably about free to like 11, mid 511. So what are you climbing in? Rock okay. climbing shoes and socks. Okay. And no gloves. Right. Barehanded. Yeah. Where are your ice tools at this point? I have one ice tool uh-huh. and one third tool holstered to my okay. Um, harness okay. for so chopping out ice okay. and placing pins. Okay, cool. But Jason and Jason has the backpack. Yeah. yeah, we went pretty light. Like, you know, we didn't bring bivy gear. We didn't bring a stove. We didn't really bring that much food. We right. only brought two liters of water. Okay. 
So Jason had the backpack. Sure. And the leader, you know, the leader's job is just to get the rope up as fast as possible and efficiently as possible. So having mm-hmm. a pack on just really kind of limits that. Absolutely, yeah. And the follower is jumaring. So okay. it's like they can just kind of, they're right. just doing whatever to get up. Right. So I led the first two pitches of the head wall, pretty long pitches, mm-hmm. um, on kind of bigger flake systems. Really, really, really athletic climbing. Mid 5'11", like I said, not too hard, but definitely spicy enough. Like, I mean, it's run out. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's 5'11 at the, you know, with bolts. It's, right, right. It's definitely spicy climbing with ice in the cracks and, you know, it's wet and mm-hmm. it's alpine climbing. So sure. it's 5'11. It's not 5'11 at the sport crag. Right. And at this point, there's one pitch where I, I was close enough to clip his bolts. Mm-hmm. But um, I veered off to do, because, you know, like I said, he his bolt ladders, like, just avoid natural features. So right. with, you know, the first five meters, I was you know, going away from his bolts and going on the natural feature of the route. Uh-huh. We get to the, the kind of the midway ledge on the head wall mm-hmm. and directly above you is you can see the compressor. Okay. Probably about 60 meters above you and okay. a line of bolts that go plumb to the compressor. And at this point, this is where Jason and Chris Geiser had gone left on okay. the head wall. Okay. And we followed more or less those variations. And Jason was kind of pointing out to me, oh yeah, this is where Chris went. Check out that zone. And Chris Geisler placed a bolt in a blank section way out left. And I found that bolt that he had placed and I, and I clipped it. And I was doing some probably like close to 11 plus free climbing to get to that point. And I did a, a really large pendulum to the leftmost arete of the head wall, like a king swing mm-hmm. of the Torre. And then at that point, we were on completely virgin terrain. Mm-hmm. I continued up climbing straight up. Amazing rock. The rock had changed a lot from this kind of big flaky rock to more mm-hmm. like granite patina and um yeah i mean i don't know i mean it was yeah mid 511 to easy 512 climbing with a few sections of aid mm-hmm. you know to chop through some ice kind of like alpine efficiency some rime ice in the cracks that just you know had to chop through to get placements and we did two more pitches to the summit of the head wall from there with yeah i mean it was unreal climbing it was mm-hmm. the best it was it was really really good and we weren't thinking at all about the summit. We weren't thinking all about chopping the bolts. We were. Right. I was. We were purely in the moment, mm-hmm. and that's the thing that I keep going back to, time and time again. Is like what that felt like, right? After this whole controversy, because that's for me why we did it was for that moment, was for being up there on these n- new pitches and having wild experiences and not thinking about anything else. And that's what a lot of climbers experience on whatever it is. You right. know, that's like the why we go climbing. And you know, we reached the summit. We reached the snow, and mm-hmm. we kind of knew we had it in the bag. Summoned the mushroom, came down, and that's when it hit us that we kind of had just climbed the southeast ridge okay. without the use of his bolts. Okay. And now what do we do? All right, so you guys are on top. We stood on the summit, and the summit's quite windy and a little mm-hmm. bit exposed, so we mm-hmm. came down to this kind of like summit plateau okay. below the summit. Sure. And, you know, we ate the remainder of our food, drank some water, you know, re-rack, got organized, kind of just... I remember sitting in silence up there and just kind of like, kind of ch- take it all in a little bit. And then mm-hmm. I remember Jason just kind of being like, so what about those bolts? Right. Like, I remember him saying that. And I mean, you know, it's kind of like one of those things that in Child 10, you talk about a lot of different things when you're in town. Mm-hmm. And one of the main topics is what happened if you took out the bolts? Like, what, right. would, what would that look like Right. if you took out territory... You know, the, or the compressor route. Mm-hmm. What, what would that even be like? So, 
Yeah, so I want to bring this up. I've been researching the controversy over this thing, and one of the things is guys, in writing anyway, maintain that you didn't really premeditate the idea of taking out the bolts, but from talking to you and, and, and understanding what it's like to be on these expeditions, clearly this is a topic that you guys have been talking about because it's what people talk about. Yeah, I mean, there. it's one of the many things that people talk about. And, you know, since 2007, when right. Zach Smith and Josh Wharton went up there with this intent to chop the bolts, right. it's really been in the, like, kind of, like, it's kind of really been, and also since Red Bull, you know? Sure, added the other Added bolts. the other bolts. It's right. been like, all right, like, what's going to happen with these bolts? When is someone going to chop these bolts? Sure. You know, like, so, this is all words, over cocktail right. hour, right? So yeah. you're all just talking shit. You know, it's you're kind of, like, talking the talk, right? Well, and, that, and that's really an important distinction because... Yeah, you guys are, it's talking the talk. But exactly. Now, and everyone talks the talk, right, man. Right, everyone talks the talk. Right. So now you're up on the summit. With the real decision. Like, okay, right. what? Well, we just talk the talk. Right. Like, fuck. Like, what do we do? Like, do we want to walk this walk? Mm -hmm. Do we want to, like, actually go through and chop these bolts and see what happens? Take the, take the heat. Right. And, I mean, who knows what's going to happen, right? Okay. Like, and... We were, is definitely this, it was, we sat up there for close to an hour talking about it. Mm -hmm. And this is the, mind you, this is on the summit of territory. It's not like the summit of El Cap. Well. So we're like up this there. Is, this is actually the amazing thing about. That we actually the had the time. The weather you guys have had. But also the fact that you had climbed it so quickly. Yeah, we climbed it in 13 hours. So, so we had plenty of time. And you're also looking at the fact that you've got mm -hmm. your, your bivy food you know, you can you can live out a pretty harsh existence if you can just get back to your tent. You yeah, don't even have we've to got go a safety net. Right. We have a safety net. But I mean, just the amazingness of the idea of summiting Saratore with leisure time. You know, it's when, kind of when weird. every story I've ever heard is just like people get up there and they're just like, "Oh my God, let's get out of here!" <laughs> right, you know? right, right. And we've got this enormous descent to do, so let's like high five, take our photos, and get the fuck off of this thing. Yeah. So you guys are like. Literally, like having the salon about whether or not to basically strike this blow. So, yeah. So, you guys, what's your thought process? So, you know, I remember being like, I was 100%. Once we stood on top of the snow, mm -hmm. like once we got to the snow, like in my mind, I was like, we have to do this. You know, we have so much time to do right. this. We have, we're up here. It's two right. o'clock in the afternoon. We have perfect weather. We have a tent with food down at the call patients. Right. There's no other like we're not that tired, right? So there, so basically, there's all these different variables, right? That, basically, you guys are in a logistical position to pull it off, mm -hmm. which five years ago or four years ago, when there was the initial controversy, you mentioned it, Zach Smith and Josh Wharton, you know, who went up there to chop them. They had much openly. worse weather. I actually joked afterwards that to clean the entire Meister route would actually be one of the greatest feats of mountaineering ever. Yeah. Because of the weather and because of all the vagrancies of simply climbing. And even. Thing. So you guys, you are actually in the position that no one's ever been in before. Even all the shit talkers and the people who say that they need to be chopped. And you are actually in a position logistically to get the work done. Exactly. So that's presented to you. Now you have to make the decision of what you want to do. Yeah, we had the logistics and everything on our side. Like the weather and everything sure. was on our side. Mm -hmm. So I was very much 100% from the get-go. Mm -hmm. This is what everyone in the last 40 years of alpine climbing has said should be done. Mm -hmm. I personally believe that it should be done. We have nothing 
to stop us. And Jason was playing a little bit more of devil's advocate Mm -hmm. up there. And I think that was wise. And we talked about the pros and the cons, right? We talked about, you know, we talked about what's going to happen to, you know, what what are we taking away? Are we going to be taking away people's experience on on climbing in Patagonia? Are we going to be taking away, you know, Mm -hmm. territory for other people? Yes, Mm -hmm. we are, right? By erasing this compressor route, you're taking away others' opportunity to climb it. We talked about what's going to happen on the internet. We talked about what's going to happen with our sponsors. But at the same time, we talked about the reasons that it should be done. We trace back to, for us, the definition of alpine climbing. Mm-hmm. You know, the sense of the unknown. That right. the summit isn't the end all. Right. It's about this experience. It's about having this partnership with your, with your buddy, going on this wild adventure, not knowing what's going to happen. Maybe coming down, maybe summiting, you know, and also just not bringing the mountain down to your level, right? And ra- rising to the occasion. Mm-hmm. And we came to conclusions that you know we just climbed the other Torres, Sarah Stanhart, Putahara, and Torre Eger. You know, for us, we had risen to the occasion. Mm-hmm. We felt like we had trained, we'd been fit, you know, and also it's just it's trash up there. It's ugly. When you see the bolts, you see bolts. Mm-hmm. But with the bolts gone, you see features, right? So for us, it was a lot of different things were the end all for our decision, but mm-hmm. mainly it was to restore territory back to its natural state Two, you know, to make a statement that, you know, alpine climbing should be done without the use of heavy machinery, without the use of fixed ropes. Mm-hmm. It should, and, and also that territory is just the most fantastic, amazing, unreal mountain in the world. By all means, it is the steepest, raddest thing I've ever seen. It is so unreal that it's it's mind-altering when you see it like you have to sit down mm-hmm. and take a breath mm-hmm. i remember when the first time i saw it i had to sit down and like that mountain deserves more respect and we felt that the bolts had really disrespected that mountain mm-hmm. and as harsh as our statement is to take them out mm-hmm. maybe it's what needed to happen mm-hmm. for people to hear that this mountain is one of the hardest summits to reach mm-hmm. and maybe that's elitist i don't know you know but i think that alpine climbing is probably elitist at that definition yeah, right. No, like we're not entitled to climb any mountain. So for us, you know, we sat and we talked about the pros and the cons, and we came to the conclusion that this is what should be done. We did it. So when you guys came to the decision, and you're you're sitting on top, and you're like, "All right, fuck it, we're gonna pull these bolts on the way down." Yeah. What was? I mean, what? Let me. I don't really know exactly what I'm asking, but. You know, did you guys like take a deep breath, like 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 the roller coaster was about to, to yeah, roll over the top? We did. No, and, I and yeah. I mean, you obviously realized the seriousness of what you were doing. We did. We re- and you know, like the whole thing, like the premeditative. You know, a lot of people have criticized mm-hmm. it, not only thinking about this mm-hmm. that that thoroughly, mm-hmm. right? And we really didn't. I mean, during the ascent, we thought only of climbing. Mm-hmm. We only thought about each pitch, each move, each cam placement. Right, we thought nothing of what was going to happen in the end result. Mm-hmm. And once we were at the summit, we were kind of faced with this decision. And I mean, we were, yeah, we took a deep breath, and it was kind of like, all right, well, this is going to be whether we like it or not. This is going to define our climbing careers for a long time. There, there's this, you know, a certain amount of the diatribes on the internet that talk about you guys being naive and you guys just walking blindly into this thing or or being sort of the lackeys of these greater powers. And, you know, from talking to you and drawing it out of you, it's like 
I mean, clearly, at least to a certain extent, and maybe not to the extent you thought, but or beyond the extent you thought, you know, you you had a pretty good idea that this was not necessarily you weren't going to get a parade. No, right. no, no, no. We right. definitely we weren't doing this to make friends. Okay. I mean, we knew that. Okay, so let's move beyond that. So you guys have made the decision. Let's get just back into the facts. You are now in a position to repel yep. and start knocking bolts out. So, so what'd that look like? Yeah, so we're repelling, and um, we've gotten a few different ideas of how to chop the bolts. Mm-hmm. And kind of like the idea that seemed to make the most sense was to stick our ice. They're not really bolts. That's one thing that we need to clarify. These are pressure pitons. Okay. They're kind of like a glorified rivet. Right. So you, They're soft you, iron. You drill a hole, and you pound them into the hole. and, and That's it. Yeah, there's some... The, the way, if they're they're kind of like button heads, I believe, they've got sort of a split shaft that compresses as it gets pounded into exactly. the hole. Exactly. Right. So, so it's pretty simple. Way different than a, than an expansion bolt that we're used to in modern times. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah it looks like a piton pounded into a hole. It looks similar to like a, 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 a drilled angle or something like that. Yeah. With an eye sticking out. Yeah. But they're also soft iron, mm-hmm. which is important. Yeah. So with all that in mind, we came... To this idea, to that we we're going to stick our ice tools in the eye where you clip, mm-hmm. where you clip the beaner, and we we just twisted them out. Some of them broke; the metal broke, you know, and just cleaned right to the face. Mm-hmm. And some of them we pulled right out. Mm-hmm. And um, the first turn, like the first twist, was quite hard. And then after that, it got easier. And there right. was usually like two or three after that, and then you're, you know, they're out. Mm-hmm. So, and in, in the end, we cleaned, or you know, we we. Chopped, which I don't really like that word. Actually, right. I, th- I like to. We cleaned 120 bolts, close to 120 bolts, off of Saratora. We cleaned the entire head wall. So, how many pitches is that? Um, about? let's see here. On the head wall, that's about s- more or less six pitches. Six pitches, okay. On the head wall, and then below that, we probably did close to I don't know, two or three. Okay. So really, it's it's because the bolts are. I mean, they're really close together. Right. I mean, they're really close. You don't even need aiders. Yeah. So there's a lot of bolts. A lot, a lot of bolts. And there's still a lot more bolts up there. I mean, the reason that we stopped cleaning the bolts mm-hmm. was because there was people descending mm-hmm. right behind us, and they were relying on the 90-meter bolts reverse. Mm-hmm. And also, it was getting quite late, and we kind of felt like we had done the deed that we came to do. Like, right. we had made a statement enough, like... So the people descending had come up the compressor. Yeah, they were okay. the last people to climb the compressor. Route. Okay, and uh, did you? And just out of curiosity, did you guys cross paths with them on the route? Oh yeah. And what did they have to say, or did they speak a language you could? They were Argentine. You thank, thankfully couldn't understand. They were. They were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were so. I mean, these guys are cool. Victor and Ricardo. One was Brazilian. The other one was okay. Argentine. Okay. And they were declining the compressor route, and they were been up for three days. Right. Right. Like no sleep. Like we caught up to them, and they were out of it. So as far as they knew, you they they, they had no idea we were chopping the bolts. Really? No. 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 They had okay. no idea until we told them. Okay. They were like, like I remember, you know, they caught up because we waited for them to summit. Mm-hmm. Because we're not going to, like, chop the bolts as they're climbing. That's just... Sure. I mean, that'd be, like, really rude. Right. And so, we wait for them... <laughs> <laughs> I just visualized what that meant. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, okay, so... Okay, yeah, that would be, yeah. So Sorry, we, boy. Wank. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you right, can't right. do this. All right. So, we, like, wait for them to summit... 
we start down and they catch up to us, obviously, because we're slower because we're chopping the bolts. Mm-hmm. And I remember Victor looking at Jason and he's like, what is, what is Hayden doing? Right. And mm-hmm. I was like, right by the belay, right. like chopping the bolts. And he's like, is he getting a cam out? And he's like, no, man, like, we're taking the bolts out. Like, look above you. And he looks up and he's like, oh. So they had repelled pitches that you guys had already cleaned and hadn't noticed yet. No, no idea. Wow, those guys were out of it. Yeah, so they were like, and he was like, oh, glad I climbed it today. Right. Right? And then, whatever, I mean, but you know, they were out of it and the 90 meter bullets reversed, they were relying on it and we were over it, continued down to our tent, you know, after that descended all the way down to the ground. So you spent the night? Spent the night, yeah, and then did the rest of the the descent the next morning. Okay, so... You left the belays because mm-hmm. you needed to use them to repel. Yep. And it's also still the standard repel. Yep. And the other reason that, you know, a lot of people have criticized us sure. for leaving the belays because, oh, well, you're using bolts that you want to use. But in our minds, you know, it's the standard repel route right. for Saratory. And right. there are already two bolts existing mm-hmm. right there, mm-hmm. clean, mm-hmm. pretty decent protection. We'd rather, you know, we could have placed natural gear, Right. But we thought that if we would have chopped them, they would have become, these anchors would become these rat nests of just multiple pins, multiple right. nuts, all right. connected right. by this tat sure. cord. Sure. And our effort to clean the mountain, mm-hmm. we thought that leaving two bolts was cleaner than having these rat nests, sure. quote unquote. Yeah. So people right. can criticize them as much as they want about that, but mm-hmm. in our minds, it's cleaner and it is cleaner in definition. So, right. you know. For us, it's, it seemed to make sense. So we left the anchors, and uh, yeah, we wrapped in the next day. Back to we hiked back to camp, mm-hmm. and um, we were confronted with a pretty, you know, we were really psyched. Of, obviously, I mean, we just climbed territory by fair means and chopped the bulls. I mean, it was sure. on like I don't even know how to explain the high that we were on. Some sort of like natural LSD trip. It was wild. Right. It feels like we were coming down from a, a full. Like we were like on drugs or something. We get back down to the base camp and we're confronted with this really horrendous news that our friend Carlisle mm-hmm. is up in the mountains mm-hmm. and she is, she's stranded up there. Her partner's left her. She has had a head injury mm-hmm. and you know, she's either dead or still alive. We didn't really know. It kind of was the highest of highs to the fully lowest of lows. Uh-huh. Everything from, wow, the most amazing ascent. Wow. What an amazing experience with this great friend of mine to wow, our friend is either dead or dying. Like, this is, it was a really hard, you know, it was a hard thing to come to, to come to grips to, for sure. And this is, in, like, I mean, we were in camp for, like, you know, five, ten minutes before we heard about this. Really? Yeah. All right, so you, like, wander into camp, elated, People, wasted. Tons I mean, of climbers are there, though. That's the thing, like, tons of climbers right. are like, huh, like, everyone's here. Like, I wonder why everyone's here, right? And then we get the news, and we're like, oh, oh, wow. Wow, this is intense. And so, I mean, it's a long, long story, but this whole rescue we're kind of a part of, and, you know, it's it goes on for two days. You know, end of story. It's really tragic, but Carlisle died. And, you know, so we felt as great of the experience that we had up there, it, it felt like it was, it wasn't at all important anymore because of her death. Mm-hmm. It wasn't important at all. Didn't matter what we did. Right. And that's the thing that comes back to me all the time is it's not worth dying in the mountains it's not worth seeing friends die in the mountains at all mm-hmm. i mean that's but you know it's the risk that we take so jason and i we walked out of the tory valley um with like it was kind of a it was kind of a 
an interesting energy. I don't know how to explain it. It was, we were very content with the climbing that we had done. Sure. And we were very happy, but at the same time, we were, we were very, very, very sad. Very sad. And, uh, you know, we got back to town and, you know, we were like, I don't know, we were like buzzing from some sort of different, you know, we were definitely not like in our right minds, obviously. We were just thinking about all sorts of different things, like why we go alpine climbing, you know, is it worth it? You know, all the risks we take, all these different things like had come to us because our friend just died. And we never really, I mean, at least I had never been confronted with that, like full front in my face. Mm-hmm. So I was considering all these different things while I go alpine climbing. So this is a person with whom you'd been hanging out with. Yeah. And I don't really, you know, Jason right. knew her a lot better right. than I did. But still, it's, but it doesn't it's a matter face though. That's like, a, yeah. Exactly. Wow. Like, it's just the thing, like, you know, you know how it is. Yeah. Like, what does it mean, like, to actually go climbing and die? You mm-hmm. don't really know until, you, until you're fully there. So, we got back to town, and, you know, territory wasn't even on our minds. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't. Well, fuck, it's so interesting to me. I'm sorry, but in all of this, and all the shit I've read, and everything else, that has I, not even been fucking mentioned. I know, that's the thing. There you really have to come back to what's really important. Choppings and bolts? Right. Or the death of an amazing climber? Right. I mean... What? What is What is it? It's like tripping me out right now that... I mean, I know you had mentioned it to me, but in all of the reports, because I spent hours in the last couple of days like reading all this stuff, there hasn't been... I mean, that has not even bubbled to the surface. I mean, that's heavy. Oh, that's super heavy. And we were going through all this, Jason and I. Right. We were... And and this was even before this whole controversy in town sparked up, right? Sure. So essentially, you know, me and Jason are feeling, I mean, we're feeling very sad because, you know, our friend just died and we're just like questioning why we go climbing in general. Mm-hmm. Like what could have happened to us? God, you know, like what happens when it goes wrong? Anyway, you know, Jason, he's like, he hasn't even had a shower. We've been in the mountains for a week. You know, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go get some food and you're going to get, he's going to go call Carlisle's, you know, boyfriend and her family and try to see what the deal is. Right. Okay. Cause at this point the news was out that Carlisle was in trouble. Mm-hmm. So he, he goes off to the, to the phone booth to try mm-hmm. to kind of sort some things out. Mm-hmm. And, um, I order some pizzas. I'm back at our, our little casa, our little house that we've rented. And, and, uh, Jason comes back about 10 minutes later. And I hear all this noise outside of the house, and Jason opens the door, and three poli- two policemen walk in, and I can see outside there's close to fifty people outside of our house. Jesus, fifty people, yeah. With so signs. this is the mob. With this is the mob, right? And this is the infamous mob that people have heard about, and there were a lot of people out there, fifty people with signs, and and so the police officers come into our house, they close the door, and there's a translator, one of the mob, one of the people. <laughs> Whatever, right. you know, one of the, he speaks English. Sure. So the policemen are like speaking in Spanish and he's translating to us the whole deal. We feel like you've stolen our history. You've taken something from us. Where are the bolts? We need them. We want them. Whatever, you know, mm-hmm. you have to come to the police station. So they search our house. They take our bolts. They find the bolts out of our backpack. And at this point, we didn't even have a shower. And we're just, I mean, we're like literally, this is like 10 minutes of being back in town. And, you know, we get out of the house and there's people that are I've sold gear to, I've given gear to, people that I've considered my friends in Child 10 mm-hmm. that I've bouldered with, mm-hmm. that I've drinking beers with, right. I've had dinner with. 
you know, think, you know, like, and it goes as far as like people that I get, I, I saw a guy that I gave him my jacket last year. Right. Giving me the finger. Right. right. Like right at me. Sure. So, you know, we were, we, we were taken to the police station and, um, this angry mob follows us to the police station in the police car. And we spend a good portion of the night trying to like reason or not really reason, but explain ourselves to the police officer because they don't really know what's going on. Sure. Right? They're they not just, actually climbers. No, they, they don't really care. They're like, what are these bolts? What did you do? Why are all these people angry at you? Right. That's the thing. They were like, we have 50 people that are yelling at you. Like, this is for your safety, right? Sure. They didn't know what we did. Right. So we're just trying to explain this to them, but, you know, we don't really speak Spanish. We're dealing with that, but also just like really, you know, our friend Carlisle. So it's just like a strange, we're in a really strange mindset. And, you know, eventually Rolo Garabati comes, speaks Spanish, obviously. You know, he comes and kind of like explains this whole thing. We're, you know, we're released from the police station and we go back to, you know, and then the continuing week in child 10 is just this kind of like, constant battle with the locals quote unquote about why we did this right what we did up there this whole thing about nationalism you know this you know and and at the same time obviously the internet forums are going off criticizing us or you know high-fiving us it's just this really really strange lots of different emotions running lots of different so you guys are there for a week close yeah probably like six days and and people, I would imagine, like people in this "quote unquote" mob, or I bet you a lot of them are involved in it f- for reasons they don't even understand. Yeah, no, it's true. It's just like it's the mob mentality, right? So these guys have done something. We don't. I mean, having no idea about what the compressor is, is or how yeah. bolts even fit into the game, or everybody else is yelling at them, and everybody else is treating them like shit. So, and they're Americans, although. I'm, Jason's not an American. He's a Canadian. Which I'm kind is something Canadian. that keeps getting lost in this whole thing. Uh, but, you know, so I, I just can imagine that there's just people along for the ride. Like, here's yeah, some no, people surely. we can surely. bag on. Yeah. But then there's also a bunch of climbers in this in this sort of group. Oddly enough, there really wasn't that many climbers. So most, a, a substantial amount of the Argentine climbers that we saw gave us a silent pat on the back. Sure. Right? Like the, hey, like, mm-hmm. we, you did a good thing, wink. Right. Kind of thing. I think it's awesome. Okay. Right? But very, very silent. A lot of the people that were involved in this mob, there were some climbers for sure, mm-hmm. but a lot of them were just locals that had been there for, what, 10, 15 years, some five? Just, right. Just people that lived in Chalten that felt that for some reason we had taken something from mm-hmm. them. Kind of, they have a very fiery emotion and they really, really, really felt that we had stolen history mm-hmm. and that those bolts on territory were theirs mm-hmm. and that we had taken them from them. Right, and that we're gringos, we're from North America, we're Americans, and it, it is really a nationalism thing. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with the climbing. It's it's just like we took these bolts from their mountain. That was a very big issue for them. All right, so you guys are there for a week, and then you split. And then yeah, I mean, I mean, my ticket was on February first right. to come and home. So I mean, are you you're are you like? Being served in restaurants? Are you getting beers? Or, I mean, what did no, it mellow I mean, we, out at all? Like, what's no, going on? No, I mean, the week that we were there was intense. I mean, you know, we'd walk down the streets and people would either, you know, people would yell at us in the streets. We'd get confrontations in the streets where people would yell at us or they'd flip us off, you and know? I, that's just the thing. Is I, just, to, I can't imagine that all of these people 
doing this. No, what's up? Like, had any concept of why they were doing it other than they'd gotten on board with this I hate these two guys thing. Right. Yeah, I don't really know. And it, it, you know, I just have these, like, like, images of, like, cartoons where... Like a little kid runs up and kicks you in the shin and runs away, you know, kind of like, <laughs> what do they know about it? Like, yeah, I mean, it was it was sad for me and Jason because you know we developed some really great friendships in child time sure. with people that we'd climbed with, mm-hmm. we'd you know we really really liked, and they wouldn't look at us, they wouldn't talk to us. So, you know, you guys said on uh, that on the summit, you were talking about the the risks and the consequences of what you guys were doing. We didn't realize But you that, didn't, but no. this was a surprise to you. This was a very much, we knew the internet forums and the whole internet sure. thing, that was going to blow mm-hmm. up. We knew mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But this was a, was very much a surprise to Jason and I. Yeah, because I can only imagine that it's definitely this very esoteric thing, this idea of these bolts and whether they were placed properly and everything else. To... Uh, have any concept that that might spill over and sort of the general public there. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it was a surprise. I couldn't no, only yeah, imagine very much, very much know? for us. I mean, and also it was just, we were really having, I mean, this is, it was heavy for Jason and I, because mm-hmm. we were having a lot of internal battles between our own climbing because mm-hmm. of Carlisle's death, mm-hmm. right? Like not only were we concerned with this bolt issue, that had really come forth with all this local bait and heat against us, but also just our own personal issues with climbing and with death and Mm -hmm. the whole thing. So it was, yeah, I mean, it was hard for us to really concentrate on one thing. You know, Mm -hmm. we were just, it was a really hectic week. And yeah, I mean, we both left. We came back, Mm -hmm. you know, to our homes. And So let me ask you this. I mean, not, not as a comment on the entire thing or the way you feel now, but... During that time, during that week, you're in town. I mean, does it go through your head that, that God damn it, I shouldn't have done this? It's a really good question because was it worth it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think that is a really good question. And Jason and I really, really thought about it in town. Mm-hmm. And at least for me, I can't speak for Jason. Mm-hmm. Um, I never regretted it. Mm-hmm. I never regretted the, the decision. But I seriously, I, and I still just question the climbing community, right? Like that is for me, like I, I knew in my mind what I did for me personally was, and that's what it comes down to. It doesn't come down to anything else. It was my decision, our decision, Jason and I's, and it was in our minds the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But the reaction that the larger community had, it just kind of disheartened me Mm-hmm. A lot, mm-hmm. you know, if that makes sense. I mean, sure. I never regretted it, but I definitely questioned, you know, why are people so attached to these bolts? Right. Why are they so attached to Maestri's Ascent? Right. I thought before this all went down that the compressor was, you know, was considered an atrocity. Yeah, universally right? blind. So universally, maybe I was just yeah. naive in the in my history of this route mm-hmm. and of this controversy, but... Mm-hmm. I thought that this was a very, very much, you know, everyone thought that this was, they des- that Meister desecrated this mountain. Sure. And that, why are we getting so much, like, so, so much heat for taking these bolts out? Right. Like, I was just like, what the hell is going on? So, I never really regretted it, but I definitely had moments of just uncertainty of, 
the climbing community. Is I that, guess you know un- what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying in, in terms of like, I often talk about climbers. I find them to be generally a cut above. And I'm a, I am elitist in that sense. Like climbers, they pursue this thing that is noble and it has these rules to it and are attached to these rules even though nobody's forcing us to be. And there's a nobility in it. And so I can only imagine that all of a sudden everyone didn't, wasn't living up to this standard that you had had put okay, on them exactly to yeah. a certain extent. Yep. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, wait, there are what we would consider fundamental ethics that are negotiable. And one of them is that the people want an easy way to the top of that mountain. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And, and, and much of the much of the outcry are from people that want an easier way to get to the top of the mountain. And that, for me, as a person outside looking into the controversy, is the thing that makes me believe that what you did was right. Because to expose that, I think is sort of an important thing. It's 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 like that, right, that yeah. sunlight is is the great disinfectant, and you know the truth is is that we you know in the end we want it to be easy. Well, yeah, it's, it's and that that's a it's a shocking thing, and and it and I think much of the the, the outcry against it. Would I, you rather? It comes down to: Would you rather have a magnificent failure or false success? And we're all human, so maybe we do want the easy. So way maybe out. we want the false success. It's really hard to say. Well, that's it for now, folks. I think that was plenty for one sitting, don't you? Second half of our conversation will be coming up next episode. Generally, that's two weeks from now, but I'll try to get it out a little faster because I know you're dying to find out what happens. little spoiler, Reinhold Messner says YDFM. To Hayden Kennedy. As usual, I'd love for you guys to skip over to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review over there. If you guys want to send me any sort of message, you can reach me at chris at anormalcast.com. I'd love for you to go to the Facebook page and like it. Also, you can leave comments at the website, anormalcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.